We have been in our series of Book of Romans, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. As we begin, I'll share a story here. I first heard of Arthur Stance in 2012, and in his incredible witness as a Christian, Arthur was born in Sydney, Australia, in a slum of February of 1885 to alcoholic parents. His parents sadly not only messed up their lives, but with alcohol, but passed on that lifestyle successfully to their children. Eventually, Arthur's sisters opened up a brothel, and he worked for them as a scout. And the tragic end for his four siblings and his parents as well is that they all died from alcoholism. And he was left to his own at the age of 15, quickly fell into trouble, eventually ending up in jail himself. Then finally, some relief came in 1916 when he, when he joined the Australian Army to serve in World War I. He was accepted even though he was a small man and had a criminal past because there was a shortage of troops. And he witnessed all sorts of atrocities in the war and eventually came back home to Sydney after serving and, as you can imagine, quickly fell back into drinking to numb the pain. And yet, through all that, God was still pursuing him. One day, when Arthur was looking for food, he stumbled into St. Barnabas, a church in Sydney, and heard the gospel message. And the Lord saved him that day. That day was Wednesday, August 6th, 1930. He left that meeting a changed man. So changed, in fact, that over the next few weeks, he found strength to give up drinking completely and landed a job. Two years later, an evangelist named John Ridley came to preach in Sydney, and he heard about this. And uh, Arthur was particularly keen to hear him because Ridley had been awarded the military cross for his bravery in the war. When Ridley preached on the echoes of eternity from Isaiah 57:15, the word eternity resonated with Arthur so much. Like Ridley, who had faced his own issues with mortality on the battlefields, um, he could understand, Arthur could understand the, the trials he had faced. During the sermon, Ridley cried out, Eternity, eternity, I wish I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? Arthur made a decision in that moment to, to witness in his faith in a unique way. In an interview years later, he said, eternity went ringing through my brain and suddenly I began crying and felt a powerful call from the Lord to write eternity wherever I went. So that's exactly what Arthur Stance did. Even though he was illiterate, he would practice the word eternity with chalk on pavement in front of his house. It would begin a habit that would last for 35 years. Several mornings a week, he would leave his house around 5 a.m. and head into the city of the Sydney and with chalk in hand would write the word eternity on sidewalks and railway station entrances and anywhere else he could think of. It is estimated that he wrote the word 500,000 times over the next 35 years. And workers arriving in the city every morning would see freshly written words, eternity, to cause them to pause and think about their eternity. But they never knew the man. He became the man who writes eternity, a legend in the city. I found out in January 2000 when the world was losing its mind with Y2K, the city of Sydney decided to take author's copper plate script and write eternity on the Sydney Harbor Bridge with lights for all the whole world to see. 
a fitting tribute to a little man who had eternity in his mind after he came to know Jesus. Eternity was written into his heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has, done, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Eternity has been written into our hearts, friends. Every single one of us gathered this morning. Eternity has been written, but we've rejected the one who wrote it. This morning, our passage in Romans 1 is talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed because what we've known about God, we have rejected. And so we're going to talk about the wrath of God. Happy Mother's Day. It'll be a memorable one. We come to the last half of Romans 1, and then we come into chapter 2 and chapter 3. Paul's argument is a lot like Amos 1 and 2, if you remember when we were there a few months ago, with this element of surprise, of first declaring the sin of the Gentiles before turning to the sin of the Jews. We won't get that far into this series. You'll have to wait and come back the next couple of years. We'll get into Romans 2 and 3. But this morning, we have an important message about God's wrath against sin. Only by fully understanding the bad news can we appreciate and understand the good news. If you don't believe or understand the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill you. It will bore you. So it's vital for us to understand the wrath of God. If you haven't turned yet, Romans 1 is where we're at. If you're using a Bible that's in in the chairs, it would help you greatly to have a Bible open. That's where we're going to be. It's on page 883. So I would encourage you to have a Bible open as we go through this. Here's the main idea, okay? Here's the main thrust for this morning. God's creation shows us that we were made for more than this world. We were made to worship him. And two points as we go through. What creation proves about God? How humans respond to creation. So Romans 1 as I've done the last few weeks, we're going to read all of 1 up to uh, 23, where we're going to end today. So Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith was proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, God, somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile, and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we will look at verses 18 through 23 this morning. First is what creation proves about God. What if someone goes through their life really trying to be good? Like really trying. They don't lie, they don't cheat, they don't steal. They get married and they treat their spouse with the utmost respect. They have kids and they raise their kids to be honest and hardworking. And it seems to work. By, by all standards, they are upstanding citizens. They, they're the type of people that you want to be friends with. They're the type of people that your kids want to be friends with, their kids. They're good people. They serve their community. They're at every PTA meeting. They, they even become foster parents for kids that are in need to serve others. They serve at the soup kitchen on, on Thanksgiving instead of eating at home. They give Christmas gifts to kids who are in need each year. They help their neighbors when they're on vacation by mowing their lawn and watering their plants. They get their mail. I mean, they're great. They're they're great to their teachers, giving them great gifts and encouragement. They serve classrooms. I mean, these people are amazing. They are the ideal people to hang around and be friends with. Is God angry with them? Does God's wrath fall on them? What about the tribe in the Amazon who have never heard the gospel? They've never had a missionary come and visit them. I mean, they've never heard of Jesus, let alone had a Bible in their own language. I mean, they must have some exemption, right? They, they must get a, a get-out-of-jail card free later in that moment on the final judgment day because no one came. Are they under the wrath of God? Yes. See, the only way we can answer these questions and many more about these tough topics is by going to the Bible. Remember, the Bible is our guide for everything in life, for your life, for our life as the church, and how we should function as the church, how we should treat one another, how we should live, how we should work. The Bible is our guide, and so we have to go to the Bible, and the Bible tells us that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse." So the great family that I shared earlier, I'm sure you might know someone like that. They're under the wrath of God if they're not in Jesus. The tribesmen in the jungle. 
even though they've never heard of Jesus, is under the wrath of God. They've rejected God. The gospel is necessary because there's such a thing as the wrath of God. Because only the gospel of salvation by grace through faith brings deliverance from that wrath. God's wrath here means his hot, settled, just, personal fury fury against sinners. God, when we read wrath, it's not so much what we think of in our in our in our human terms. God is not some off his rocker, imbalanced person who just flies off the handle in anger. That's not God. Instead, what we read in the Bible is God is patient and long-suffering with sinners. And yet, Scripture is clear. He's wrathful against sin, and we all sin. Paul says his wrath is revealed, similar to what we read last week with the righteousness revealed through the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. But here now we read the wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What draws God's wrath is those two things. The first, ungodliness, speaks of the disregard for God, the destruction of vertical relationship with him. The second, unrighteousness, refers to a disregard of human, human rights to, to love and to love truth and justice and others. We are all godless because when the rubber meets the road in our minds and our lives, we choose ourselves over God every time. We are all unrighteous because we choose ourselves over our friends, our neighbors, and our family. And at the root of these two sins is a devilish pride that thinks only of ourselves. Paul is clear that God is not passive here in the face of sin. God is relentlessly and vigorously opposed to every evil. Ungodliness and unrighteousness is, as D.A. Carson puts it, the de-godding of God. The sin most offensive to God is idolatry as we'll see in our second point. The de-godding of God, the, the vertical dimension of sin. All the horizontal dimensions of sin come from the anarchy that results from the de-godding of God, from us wanting to be like God. In the Bible, all sin, we recognize and we learn that all sin is first and foremost an offense to God. For example, when David sinned in Psalm 51, and we read this, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What makes sin so vile is that it's, it's ultimately against him. <clears throat> your sins might be against your spouse because you don't respect them or you hurt them or you're cruel or you're abusive, but ultimately your sin is against God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What we learn is God's wrath is is right and it's earned. And why is that? Paul says because humans have suppressed God's truth. The Greek word for suppress means to press down with force against something that is exercising a counter force. People don't like the truth and they do what they can to oppose it, to push it down, to push against this truth of who God is and his rightful rule in our lives. And the truth here is the general truth that is open to every single person on planet earth. Not the truth that God revealed in Christ and the gospel. That's, that's special revelation. We'll get to that in a minute. 
And people are guilty because they sin against the truth they have, not against the truth they don't have. (coughs) Excuse me. One can only suppress something of which he has knowledge of. Paul's making that point here. All beings have knowledge about God. He gave it to them. He revealed it to them. And natural revelation makes us all guilty before God. He says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so everyone is without excuse. God is, God is saying through Paul, everyone knows better, and creation shows us that. Every person on earth is given general revelation through creation. And so how do we define general revelation? Well, general revelation is exactly that, general. It's general in its scope. That, that means that it reaches all people. He, he makes the sunrise and the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so the, the revelation is general in its geography as well. It's, it's, it's surrounding the entire world. As, as David writes in Psalm 19 that we heard this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everyone sees that. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation itself reveals that there is a God. He, and he says what's also been revealed in our conscience. Just turn over to, well, you might not have to turn over your Bible, but chapter 2, verse 14 in Romans. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Everyone is given this. God has revealed himself to the world, to every human, whether they grow up in advanced America or in the tribes of Africa. It's in nature through creation. It's also in their conscience. And general revelation is given to everyone. Everyone knows that someone is behind this world. One simple way that the world understands that is then they, when they look at a painting. If someone walks into a gallery and they look at a painting, they know that there's a painter. If you ever walked into a gallery with an atheist and they, and they say, boy, how did this show up? They know there's a creator. They want to know who the artist is, who painted this. They they can see it, and and they can see it in creation. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? I remember the first time I walked up to the rim in Grand Canyon, I was in college, and I was just awestruck. My, my, My mind and heart, of course, growing up in a Christian home, being a believer since I was a child, I couldn't help but but worship God as I stared out into this mass that I believe that God created it. And growing up in Michigan, I, I grew up in the town called Mount Morris, which had no mounts. <laughs> to, to now come out here to Mount Rainier, that's a mount. And every time I see it, my heart just screams in worship because God created that. And people suppress that truth. It's before them. The heavens declare the glory of God. And yet, there's still many that say they don't believe in God and creation, that creation does nothing for them. And the Bible simply says that they're lying. 
they have suppressed the truth. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine an explosion in a paint factory, and, and by doing that explain, explosion, the, the paint goes up and it comes down, and what we have is the Mona Lisa. What's the chances of that happening? You know, we, we, we don't think that way. We, we, we know that, that, that there, there was a creator of that painting. It was Leonardo da Vinci. Every single person knows this when they go into an art gallery. You know, it, it's, it's foolish not to come to that conclusion. If I buy a new car and you ask what kind of car it is, you're going to ask who makes that car. You know, do I say, oh, it just appeared. It just assembled itself. We, we don't think that way. We know there was a creator behind it. Everyone knows that. And so creation is proving to us there is a God. Creation proves that God is the one behind it all. It didn't just appear. It didn't just come on its own. God designed it. God made it. And by the way, God called it good. And, and because God created it all, it shouts of his glory. And the only response is for us to worship him. See, he has allowed all human beings to know enough to hold them responsible for not worshiping him and treating others unjustly. His wrath towards our sin is just and right. We deserve the wrath of God for rejection of him. So that's the first point. Second, how humans respond to creation. Left to our own devices as humans, we don't respond well to general revelation that's given to us by God. And Paul is clear in verse 21, for although they, that's us, everyone, knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It says we, we knew God. Now this doesn't mean that we have a relationship with God. It's not what he's conveying here. But through his general revelation in the world, we know there is a God. We can see him. And Paul says we don't honor him or give thanks to him. And thanklessness is really the problem here. When Paul says that we don't honor him or give thanks, he's really saying that we're all plagiarists. We take credit for what God has done and we pass it off as our own. We don't acknowledge God or our dependence on him, but we say we are fully independent in ourselves. We prefer the illusion that we are in complete control of our lives. And we're not thankful because we don't accept what he has done for us. Thanklessness is the marker of those who reject the gospel. Thankfulness comes from those who have recognized their humility before God. See, proud people think that they are enough, so why would they give thanks to others? But humble people recognize they are never enough and strive to give thanks for others' involvement in their lives. Proud people tend to be critical and complaining and discontent, but humble people accept what life has brought and work to show thankfulness and contentment no matter the season they are in. But proud people don't give any thanks. See, gratitude is the echo of grace reverberating through the hollows of the heart. But proud people don't need grace because proud people have all of the hollows of their heart crammed full of their own wisdom. They are enough for themselves. 
But humble people know that they're not enough. Humble people know they need God. And if we're to grow spiritually as a church family, friends, we need to be a bunch of thankful people. That's what grows spiritual lives here in this church. But on our own, we're, we're thankless. If we're all by ourselves, we're thankful. So we don't honor God, we don't give thanks. Instead, Paul says, become futile in our thinking and, f- and, and our foolish hearts are darkened. When, when we don't honor God and thank him rightly with our lives, we, we inevitably become foolish. The state in which humans are placed when they fail to honor God as, as God, we become fools. Fools here is the picture of babbling fools whose topic for the day is their own foolish wisdom. It kind of sounds like cable news. Paul says in their foolish hearts, they're darkened. Now, why did, did he choose the word hearts here? Well, it's the, it's the seat of emotions and will and mind for the Greek audience to which he's writing. See, the heart stands for the entire inner life. The heart is the, the steering wheel for our life. The heart is the center of your inner life. From, from your heart, the direction of your life is determined. Mind, emotion, will, all find their commonality in the heart. And so when you read heart here, it's comprehensive. When someone rejects God, not only is his thinking gone awry, but his whole inner life has taken a hit and gone sideways. They cannot think straight, and they don't act in accordance to common sense even. We'll see that even more clearly in a couple of weeks through the rest of this chapter. The rejection of God and the devastation of darkness to the human soul has a tragic consequence. Man's rejection of God ends in darkness because they proceed from a denial at the beginning of what they know to be true and they suppress the truth. See, the problem with man is not so much a lack of the knowledge of God, it's the refusal to acknowledge God, which at the bottom line is a question of moral honesty and, and integrity. Paul is saying that man begins his intellectual quest by refusing to acknowledge what he knows to be true, which is that we understand provokes God to wrath. But this is a primordial sin of mankind and no human is exempt. No matter how brilliant or how well-versed they are in argumentation, we all come from a fallen nature. That is to say, we all think from a perspective of moral bias. No one is a clean slate. We're all infected by the fall. So those who in their wisdom reject God's revelation do not enter a wonderfully new, exciting life, but a life in which a comparison with the service of God is is flat and tasteless and and pointless. And, And their attempt to be wise on their own makes them out to be completely foolish See, people who fail to acknowledge and honor God, yet claim to be wise in their own, become complete fools in the biblical sense of the word. A fool is someone who will never reach God on their own. See, the scripture says a fool is someone who says there is no God. And the peak of their foolishness, Paul says, is what they choose to worship. Look at verse 23 and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, what we learn from this, friends, is all people worship. Every single human worships something. And what happens when people who are not thankful towards God, they find something else to worship. They they find an object to worship. 
And we're meant, we were created to worship God, but we choose to worship the gods of our own making rather than the eternal God, falling deeper into sin in the process and earning God's rightful condemnation. See, sin problems are always worship problems. When we reject God, we make other things that we can worship. And and it's interesting, the more time you spend, the more you read, no one is taught idolatry. We can figure it out by ourselves quite easily. We create idols. And they're most likely not the same that Paul talks about here, right? Like wooden idols or metal ones that fill homes. No, our idols now, today, are more subtle than that. Like performance. Performance is an idol for many. Whether at school or at work or at sports, performance can quickly become an idol that people worship. I have to do well. I have to get an A. If not, I'm a failure. I have to do well in my next evaluation at work or I'm worthless. And we begin to focus on that and they begin to worship that. That's their idol at that point. Or pleasure. We'll see that even more clearly in the, the, the remaining verses of chapter one. Worship or a pleasure becomes that huge idol that they have to find pleasure. They, they, they seek after pleasure in all forms. But even as Christians today, and maybe you know, you're following Christ for many years, you're susceptible to fall into this trap and develop idols to worship for yourself instead of God. Some worship the idol of a pain-free life. You've muddled through a lot of physical or emotional pain. And so that becomes an idol that you fight for. I need to be happy. I have to have it. I deserve happiness and freedom from pain. So that becomes an idol. Or, or peace. Peace becomes an idol. I have to have peace. I have to have peace at home. I have to have peace at work. I have to have peace at church. Peace at all costs. And so you fight for that idol of peace. You have to have peace. And all of these things, I'm sure there's, there's more that we can think of. I could list for you a five or six idols that, that are just narrowed to pastors. Right? Amen, Chris? Idols of our hearts as pastors. I have to have a healthy church. I have to have healthy members. And, and I fight for that. And that becomes an idol in my life instead of worshiping God. See, we're all susceptible as, as Christians. See, an idol is when there is something that captures our attention, our imagination, and our allegiance to it more than God. Something in which we place all of our hopes the thing that we look to to calm our deepest fears, that's an idol. And so that can be marriage. I have to have this good marriage. It can be kids. My kids have to do this. They have to do it my way. They have to go this path. It can be work. It can be home. And problems come in our lives when we give any created thing inordinate affection that God alone deserves. Those things cannot sustain it. Friends, people are terrible things to worship. They're they're never made to sustain the pressure. Kids, spouses, they're horrible idols. They can't sustain the pressure They can't withstand the the weight of that worship. So sin problems are worship problems. 
And when the world rejects God and refuses to honor him or thank him, they ultimately replace him with idols for them to worship. All along the world, they're still under the wrath of God. See, everyone who is not in Jesus is currently under the wrath of God. And so friends, Christian friends, that should fuel our evangelism in the world. Because perhaps we've become too complacent. Maybe in the last few weeks or last month, we've just kind of grown weary of sharing the gospel. But we share the gospel in our lives with those we work with and we live with, not because they don't know about God, but because they do know and they've suppressed the truth about God. People aren't condemned by hearing the gospel and rejecting it, friends. No, people are condemned because they've already rejected God. You know, if it was true that the way people are condemned is by the hearing of the gospel and rejecting it, and if that was the only truth out there, you see, then the best way to make sure people get to heaven is to never share the gospel with them. You know, if a tribesman comes from a a long distance and never had the gospel, they're here on America, we would say to them, plug your ears whenever you hear anything about God. But that's not what the Bible says. They're already rejecting God. God's wrath is being poured out, not against those who have rejected the gospel, but against those who have rejected God. And we have to understand this. The nature of the problem is not that people don't know. The nature of the problem is that they do know and they suppress the truth and they reject him still. That's why we need the gospel. They are presently under the wrath of God and so they need to hear the hope of the gospel through Jesus Christ. See, everyone who is not in Jesus that you came in contact with this week is presently under the wrath of God. So the barista that I saw last night at Starbucks as I finished my sermon, if she's not in Jesus, she's under the wrath of God. I needed that reminder last night because I can so easily pass by friendly people who take my money and give me good coffee and all things is good. But if they don't know Jesus, they will go into a Christless, godless eternity. The people that you see day in and day out, if they're not trusting in Christ, friends, things won't turn out well for them. They are under God's wrath because they've rejected God. It says they do, they, they do know about him and they suppress that truth. And only through the gospel can they be liberated, can they be free. This message is for you too, friend, who if you're here and you don't call yourself a Christian, you've been given the same opportunity as with every single person in the world to see creation, to see and understand there's a creator. And yet you've been given more than just general revelation. You've been given special revelation because you're sitting under God's preached written word. Are you trusting in yourself? Consider, friends, what do you depend on to justify you before this Holy One who made the heavens and the earth? I mean, really, think about this. Back in in your soul, deep down in your bones, what are you leaning on for hope? Is it your ability to keep some, some moral guidelines that you were taught as a child? 
the fact that you attend church occasionally or, or maybe you really enjoy listening to sermons, the fact that you're doing okay financially and your health is, is doing pretty good. Or perhaps you're thinking, well, God isn't judging me right now. Things are going really well, so, so I don't need to worry about that. But what if you were to die tonight and you stand before God? Because one day you certainly will. And he asks you that classic question that you've heard. Why should I let you into my heaven? What do you say? Friends, whether you're a Christian or not, you need to answer that question. You need to think through that right now. What true answer would your heart allow your lips to say even if your lips have been taught the right words? Remember, you're looking into the eyes of the one who made you and who knows all of your thoughts. He's seen every single moment of your life. He's never taken his eyes off of you. What has your heart truly trusted in? Friend, you will answer that question one day. And what will you say? Can I implore you, friend, to trust in Christ? To trust in him and what he accomplished for us on the cross? You know, it's a common held belief that we need to be saved from our sins, but the sobering truth from the Bible is that we need to be saved from God himself. For his wrath is personal and active against those that reject him. But Christ came, 1 John 4 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, a payment for our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God. And who would have dreamed that a Roman cross, one of the worst, most fearsome devices of torture ever devised, would become the symbol of the greatest love ever expressed. We have a cross in our church. It is a horrific device. But as we look at that, we see what Christ has done for us. And Paul tells us a few chapters later, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him, from the wrath of God. See, God satisfied the wrath of God towards our sin on the cross. See, there is good news today on Mother's Day. God satisfied. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. And so friends, Christ alone can be trusted. And faith in him alone is the gift that God gives us in salvation. It's all by God's grace. He will justify you. He will give you his righteousness. And you'll stand before almighty, holy God, redeemed, not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you on the cross. And friends, if you have more questions, I want to talk with you. I'm sure there's people sitting in your row that would love to talk with you more about this glorious gospel. Or send me a message. I'd love to meet and talk more about it. Because all of us are made for eternity. And I want you to understand 
what it looks like to trust in Christ and have eternity with him. All of us are made to worship God for all of eternity. And God is enough. You know, I'm ending here, but I watched a TV show a few years ago. It's called The Good Place, if you've seen it. Main premise of the show is the world's view of the afterlife. The first season was interesting. The middle seasons were completely boring. But I kept with it because I wanted to see the end. I wanted to see how the show is going to, to finish up and really insight to how the world thinks of the afterlife. And so they, they, the main characters make their way through the show, first ending up in hell because the, you know, the world's like they lived bad lives, did bad things, so therefore they're there, which was interesting in itself. Then in a world-like fashion, they, they find a way to work themselves out of hell and, and, and get to heaven. And the last episode was heaven. This afterlife of, of, of this joy that they looked for the whole series. And heaven for them was filled with, with everything you can dream of as they're writing this. So, so rightly, they could go and get any type of ice cream you can imagine. Just unlimited ice cream. Never get full, never get sick, just get ice cream. Or, or the guys could say, I want to drive any car. You think of a car and you can just drive it. Drive it fast, you never crash, you're not going to die. You just do whatever you want, right? Over and over and over. You name it in the episode, they could do it. And, and that's what heaven was like for these writers and probably to many people in the world. That's what the afterlife, you know, I get to go do whatever I want. Unlimited, unfettered joy, anything I can think of. But then something fascinating happens at the end of the episode. The episode literally has them grow tired of all the joy they could ever think of. All the joy they could ever imagine. And the episode ends that it wasn't enough. Their imaginations couldn't fully satisfy them. And they realize that they need to end their existence. And so they wish to be annihilated. They had everything in the world. Anything they can think of to bring joy. And they, they, they realize it's not enough. They weren't going to be happy. They got bored, essentially. All the possible pleasures, it was never going to satisfy them. I found this fascinating because as Christians who read and believe the Bible, we long for heaven. And, and I wonder if some of us long for a malnourished view of heaven. If you believe that heaven is only about a family reunion, about seeing loved ones that you've lost, then you will eventually grow tired of heaven. It won't be enough. And you might want to argue with me. You might think I have some hardened views towards family. I don't love my family enough. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I would sorely miss them if they passed on. But if, if heaven is only my family, it won't satisfy me for all of eternity. What will satisfy my heart for all eternity is God himself. The very person that Paul says the world rejected. See, that was, that's what was missing in the TV show. See, the, the writers had such a low view of what brings satisfaction thinking that all that we could have on earth would be enough, but friends, it will never satisfy. God is only, the only one who can bring complete satisfaction for all eternity. 
and you're made to worship him for all eternity. That is the only way that eternity will be worth it. Many of you have heard of Augustine. Augustine, sorry, he lived in a, a long time ago. I've mentioned him a few times. Do you know his backstory? Do you know his life? In his young life, Augustine pursued all that the world offered. He, he, he wanted everything the world could offer. So whether that was drinking or sex or anything, he was after that. He writes in his autobiography that temptation is sizzling and crackling around me. That's how he viewed life. It was just this motive to go into the world and do everything, to just enjoy it all. And he writes of, of how at the age of 16, he finally fathered a child and had to write back to his mom ashamed because his mom this whole time was praying for him. But he still had this desire, just quench, unquenched desire to fulfill and kept searching for anything in the world to satisfy. And the mom kept praying that he would submit himself to God. He, he writes at one time, you've probably heard this before, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. See, he recognized from his upbringing that he needed to be there, but he just wanted this drive to do whatever he wanted to find pleasure. So he goes away to school, continuing to battle this, and he goes to listen to St. Ambrose because he heard he was a great speaker. And he was, and he was hooked. And through the, the preaching of the word, he had this battle that would begin for his soul. And one day he sits on a bench in Milan and he was tortured because he, he had heard the truth and he didn't know what to do because he still wanted these urges to be fulfilled. He didn't want to give over his life. And, and, and as he sat there on this bench and just tortured, he hears these kids singing a song not too far, take and read, take and read. And the song that's going on, and, and he realizes in that moment he had his Bible with him, and so he takes the Bible and opens it up to the book of Romans, and God saves him. And later he said, he said this, and now you stretched forth your hand and drew up my soul out of darkness because my mother wept to you on my behalf. J.C. Ryle says, where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. Moms, keep praying for your kids. Later, as a Christian, Augustine would, would write his confessions. It's a well-sold book you can order on Amazon. And he thought back to those days of unbelief and he writes this, the thought of you, God, stirs one so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. You know, people that you interact with, people in your home, people in your families, school, work, they're searching for something. They are longing for something. And you see it. You see this outworking of it. Friends, they are restless. It's right before us. And we have the answer. You know, that's why Paul says that he was under obligation. He had a debt to share the gospel because it was the, the prescription for this restlessness that the world is struggling through. And all of our hearts are restless 
until we find our rest in him. Have you found that rest, friends? Oh, it's overwhelming. It comes in waves as a Christian when you come back to that gospel and realize that Christ saved us. And if you're not in him, I'm sure you're restless, searching for anything in this world that can give you and fulfill those desires. I pray that the truth of this and what Augustine wrote for us will emblazon our souls as we go out into this world. Our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. God, you are a gracious and good God and you've supplied us with everything we need. And I pray that you would forgive us. You would forgive us as Christians for moments and days and weeks where we have lost sight of you and we've looked for joys in this world that can never satisfy. God, I pray for those that are seated here this morning who have looked to the world to satisfy them and they're still restless and they can feel it in their souls. They've rejected you. And God, I ask that you would give them faith to believe in you and that they can find rest. And they will find the hope and the love that they've been searching for only through what Christ has done for them. And God, you would help us with these wandering souls Help us to direct them to you. Remind us again that our hearts are truly restless until we find our rest in you and encourage us to share this hope with everyone we come in contact with in this dying world this week. Give us encouragement along the path. Give us hope. And Father, help us to love you faithfully. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.